Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, November 9th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's choosing to join us today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice, and they're available on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships. And a tool I've used to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives as they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we'd appreciate you doing so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone or send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org and you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e 
at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. And we have plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials. We have, today being a Thursday, there will be a support group tonight. If you or anybody you know might be interested in joining us, absolutely free. All of the information you or they would need is available at the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. You can go to MindShiftersAcademy.org, and please note there's a separate login information page for Thursday and Tuesday, since at this stage of the game we're doing two support groups most weeks. And we'd be happy to have you join us or have you pass the information along to somebody that you think might benefit from joining us. So how can we support you? What's on your mind? How is it resting, landing for you that we're doing the way of mastery for the second year and or what comments or questions do you have about whether this is sounding any different or stirring up different associations for you as you listen this time around I had somebody mention that they were quite um, quite surprised to hear so early on in the way of mastery such a clear statement about putting ego in its proper place. And they had not experienced that the first time they listened to or read the way of mastery. And that is a, uh, it's one of the gifts of a work like this, that it has the capacity to stir different associations in you every time you read it, in part because you're a different person when you come back six months or a year or six years later. And if we can bring ourselves to these works deep, you could call them true, you could call them uh, powerful, but if we bring ourselves to them over and over again with the idea that we don't know everything and so whatever we think we know about this work or about ourselves is at best only partially true and perhaps even completely false, then um, we have the capacity each time we come to a work like this to learn something new, either about ourselves or about the work. So we are interested. What is there about this work that is landing for you in a certain way 
what comments or questions might you have? Six one zero, you're in the air. Hi, Doctor Jim. Hello, Susan. So, yeah, I. Um, one of the things I've noticed is having done the Walzak wake-up sheet as often as I have and read his book and discussed it, coming to back to the way of mastery, it seems as if having heard that I'm hearing the way of mastery alongside what seems to be a constant, and I, you said moment to moment, and it is moment-to-moment watching of thoughts, teaching myself that my thoughts are what cause my feelings and I can own them fully. Somehow that book is coloring the hearing of this book again. And the book, this book seems, as you said, we bring new selves to it and I feel that's probably the case for everybody. It sure is for me, so... Um, it's just a little comment on the whole thing. Well, I certainly have experienced that that way for myself, whether it is, you know, a book that I... It it doesn't happen as much for books like uh, um, the the novels that I read or the science fiction fantasy books that I read. Right. There are almost none of them that even though I enjoyed them immensely and some of them like the uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's books I would even use in therapy because yeah. she had such good, you know, understanding of human nature, etc. And yet I don't find myself going back and rereading those books the way I can go back and reread A Course in Miracles or The Way of Mastery or Diedrich Wolzik's book. Yeah, right. Um, uh, I get this, you probably get it too, this um, choose again little meditation. And one that came today was very much on target. I'm trying to find it in my, here it is. Okay. Oh, no, that isn't the one. That one's great too, the one today. In fact, we could take a detour and talk about that one. But he was talking about the ego and how it uses suffering in a way that isn't so good. And we had a long discussion yesterday in our little Wednesday support group about that. And each person was realizing how subtly they step into being the victim, which means their whatever suffering they are doing is a chosen thing and the pain has been pushed through a filter of am I suffering or am I just feeling pain? We tried to pick apart the difference between pain and suffering and we were mentioning that animals, for instance, they feel pain, it's obvious, but we're not sure they're suffering, not the way we understand suffering. Boy, is that something to think about. But anyway... There are so many different detours to take with this. So I'll stop talking because I'm going off in five different directions. Well, there's a lot in there, you know, and there's a lot for us, each of us, to, um, you know, reconcile. 
um, the the idea of suffering, one of the best, I think it was from a Pema Children book where they were talking about the first suffering or the first pain and the second pain. It's the idea that when the event happens, it's disruptive mm-hmm. and or traumatic. But yeah. then as I revisit it and I say, oh, this shouldn't have happened and I'm, I'm feeling anger or resentment towards this person or life or whatever, it's how, what I'm creating in my mind as discomfort or disruption or anger or fear or sadness, that's the second level. Absolutely. And that's never and you, necessary. Well, you think of little kids. Little kids don't know when they're going through something that isn't right. They they aren't even saying to themselves, this isn't right. They're just saying, this is. Or they're not even saying anything. They're just in it. It's almost as if they don't have a certain kind of ability to think or filter at that age. They're just taking it in. Whole, right. And, and, and what is that? What is that ability to think or filter? It is programmed thought patterns. Yeah. It is judgments. It is evaluations. It is uh-huh. assessments that have been programmed into them from their family or culture that's all that is. It's programmed thought. It's what we call the self. It's what we call, in the way of mastery, it calls it the intellect, which has been shoved full of trivialities, like you, you put garbage in a garbage can. Well, that's what happens to us as children when we start deciding this is bad and this is wrong and this should never have happened, etc. Mm-hmm. That's not something that we come to on our own. And so it is it the fact that we have done that that makes it necessary for us to go into therapy and unwind the thread and empty the spool? It's almost as if we filled up a spool with erroneous thinking and we can go back the other way to the original something, whatever it was, and even take away the interpretation of it. So it's just a thing. Well, that is a possibility. And, you know, you say go into therapy, and my mind immediately said, or take up a Buddhist practice, or, you know, get get into the deep spiritual teachings from a number of different traditions and actively mm-hmm. work that, that process. Like there are um, things in the 12-step process that are very, very helpful for dismantling false beliefs and trauma energies and, so it isn't just you have to go into therapy. Mm. And yet it is that you have to recognize there's something in my pattern of thought that's creating and or perpetuating this. Totally. Yeah. And once a person's willing to recognize that, then there's all kinds of options for making change for the better. Well, that's true. Ongoing. (sighs) And I don't need 
to suffer just because I'm in pain. What does that mean? I can just have the experience of this physical sensation that I'm labeling as pain. I might even have some success. I know to varying degrees a lot of different people do. I might have success relabeling the pain as a sensation or as a discomfort or as an awareness Mm. and literally transform my experience of the physical sensation. Right. There are many women who have done that with the Lamaze method of childbirth and breath work and and they've relabeled Mm -hmm. this sensation, this intensity of sensation that they have in contractions to something else. Yeah, that's true. That's a good example. And there, there has to be some capacity for that in a variety of different ways for things like hypnosis and self-hypnosis to work. Mm-hmm. And literally work so well that some people go through major surgeries with only yeah. that with only hypnosis. Yeah, I've heard of that. Dr. Tim, I have I hope to be listening again, but I have somebody coming to the door. I can see him out the window and I'm going to have to okay. handle something. Okay. No no worries. I'll mute you so you can handle that. Blessings. Thanks for the comments and um if you come back and want to chat again, hit one twice on your phone. So, you know, here's here's a um, a potential to talk about, you know, this is directly related in my mind to what we're talking about in the way of mastery where it says you choose or you experience only the effects of your choices. And it's important to recognize <clears throat> that the way of mastery says right away, okay, but we're not talking necessarily about your conscious logical choices or your intellect. We're talking about your true deep self that's resting right next to the mind of the creator and you know that it's just like it's like on a different scale of of parts work we've talked about parts work and Richard C Schwartz created the idea of working in a therapy process in the acknowledgement that we all have many different parts of ourselves and that a part can get created a part can get created at a time in our lives where we're feeling stuck or overwhelmed and so this part is generated as an answer to a problem that we don't feel in the moment capable of handling or, 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 or handling smoothly. So you can think of parts work as creating these different aspects of myself to handle difficult situations and intense abusive patterns in relationship or the trauma of a war zone or and and if I'm you know, if I survive that, then that part of me is now a psychological dynamic that's available that can get 
called into action in a variety of different situations in my life where they, they basically just get resonated in the activity. Well, on a different level of scale, the way of mastery is saying there is a part of our mind that's never left its home, this capital S self, your true spiritual self that rests right alongside the mind of the creator that may be making choices for you to come into the physical and have what Christian Sundberg would title serious physical constraints that challenge your ability to remain loving. Why would you do that? Why would your higher self do that? To be able to strengthen your capacity for choose, to choose for love in more and more difficult situations. Just like lifting heavier and heavier weights at the gym exercises the muscle and eventually builds a strength where it didn't exist before. So we can have different parts of ourself that get activated and we can have a part of our spiritual self that is completely safe, understands our total safety, and has opted for the experience that we're having in the physical. And we can also have a conscious logical mind that thinks that's completely crazy and there is no such thing as a... It doesn't mean these other layers of my existence aren't still there just because I'm not aware of them or I'm not willing to consider them, it doesn't mean they cease to be. So that's what this work is calling us to. And in lesson two, in the way of mastery, we left off with talking about the courage it takes to look upon every thought you've ever had, all the feelings, all the behaviors you've done, and to look on them with love and with the innocence of a child. And, and to understand that everything in your life you participated in, in one form or another. And to look on that lovingly. I was listening to the we can do hard things podcast and they have a, a woman who's you know she's brilliant and she's a, an author and has written powerful books and but one of the things she does is she goes into women's prisons just to go connect with these people at a human level and share something of what she's learned about being successful in life and relationships. And working with them at, at understanding that every negative thing that's happened to them at some point or another, they participated in that occurring. And it's difficult to do that without saying, oh, you're blaming the victim, etc. But it's from this deeper perspective that says, all right, somewhere along the line, I made choices that put me in this situation. And it didn't cause what happened next, but it made it possible for that to happen next. 
and and they're talking about the power of agency of responsibility that comes to us when we're willing to look at things that honestly. And that's what they're talking about here in Lesson 2 in the Way of Mastery. It says, therefore, if what you're creating, your experience in life, is not up to snuff, it doesn't mean that you are some kind of failure. Failure is not even remotely possible. This is a process of trying and learning. This is what they said. Here's a catch. The part of your mind that began to teach you a long, long time ago about what to accept as acceptable creations and what to reject, what to take responsibility for and what to deny responsibility for, that is the self. That is the ego. That is the intellect. And it just creates a conflict. And that conflict creates the illusion of separation. When you take this to the extreme, one discovers your hospitals are full of those who are in deep depression, in paranoia, and the deep feeling within the being of being alone, within the human mind of being alienated and alone. The text reads, helplessness, hopelessness, despair, anger, and hatred are all symptoms of a fundamental delusion that has occurred within the depth of the mind. It has occurred because there's been a long history of having cultivated the skill of listening to the wrong voice. The wrong voice in this case is the voice of ego. The wrong voice to put as the leader, to put as your God, is your ego. Ego, again, just a simple tool to be picked up when needed and put back down in its proper place soon and often. The ego and that thought pattern has taught you to judge, to pick, and to select what you will be responsible for. And the more you move into that consciousness, the harder it seems to ever hope for a chance of transcending the sense of separation, the sense of conflict, and the lack of peace. For how many of you have not known the feeling of laying your head upon the pillow at night and not being able to sleep because it's just not going the way you expect it? The reason you cannot sleep is because you are in judgment of your creation. The judgment is the same as holding a goal for things to be different than they are. <clears throat> Dr. Michael Rice recommends that every night before you go to bed, you take a breath or two and you say, I cancel any unachieved goals. And I ask to be shown how to have a peaceful night's sleep or a restful night's sleep. That's exactly what they're talking about here. Accepting your creations as they are and dropping any judgments against them as being negative or wrong. Looking lovingly on what you've said and done and not said and done that you thought you should. Dropping the judgments is the same as canceling any goal for it to be different, in my mind. The text goes on and says, 
it is possible to cultivate just the opposite in which you learn to look with perfect innocence upon all things that arise in the field of your experience. It is possible to look with innocence and wonder on every feeling that you experience from the place of curiosity as you would look upon a cloud that passes through a sky. Look at it, marvel at it, marvel at its shape, its color, and embrace it, knowing full well it does not affect the purity of the sky through which it temporarily floats. You can take that same position when you look at your thoughts and your emotions and your physical sensations. The text goes on and says, Each of your creations is exactly like this. It arises in the field of time and space. You experience it, and then it fades away. Every hurt you've ever known is like a cloud that began to pass into the field of your awareness because you perceive things in a certain way. If that hurt is still lodged within you, it's because you latched on to it. You followed the voice of ego, which caused you to believe that you are identified with that feeling or that perception. And because you mistakenly thought it was you, you assumed that if you let it go, you might disappear, you might die. This, this talks exactly to what we were talking about with Susan, that as a child, children go through things and they just, you know, the crocodile tears can be falling because they're in pain because they pinched a finger or scraped their knee or whatever, and their attention gets shifted over something else. The tears are still pouring down the cheeks, and they're smiling and laughing. They're not stuck, focused on the pain or the upset or the judgment. They have to be trained into that. They have to learn to follow or to glorify the thoughts of the ego, and then they can trap these things within them, latch on to them, and keep that negative process of energy and thought and emotion going long after the event occurred. The text goes on and says, the human mind is that field within creation, within consciousness, that has learned to become so identified with perceptions, experiences, and feelings that are not necessarily comfortable, that it begins to believe that if it lets go of them, it will die. You've probably heard people argue, I need my anger. I need my grief. I, I can't feel true love unless I've had the pain of loss, etc., this work is saying that is illusion. This is very similar to what Michael Singer talks about. People, Michael Singer says, people who say that, even the great spiritual teachers who say you've got to have the pain to have the pleasure, they're ignorant. And again, this is not a negative term. It just means he's saying they haven't had a different experience, and so they can't, they can't know that it is possible to have that connection to that bliss state and it is not dependent upon the pain. 
it also doesn't necessarily eliminate all the physical pain. So that paragraph again is read. The human mind is that field within creation, a field of energy within creation, within consciousness, that has learned to become so identified with perceptions and experiences and feelings, even those that are not necessarily comfortable, that it believes that if it lets go of them, because it's identified with them, it believes it will die. From our perspective, as we look upon the energy fields of those those of you who are still identified with this dimension, it looks as though you're gripping, tightly gripping, causing energy to condense. Your knuckles are white. You're trying to hold on to limitation and guilt. You're trying to hold on to unworthiness and doubt. You seek innocence and peace. You seek abundance, prosperity, and joy. But then when you touch those things, it frightens you. Why? Because the truth of the kingdom requires openness, trust, expansiveness, and spaciousness. The truth of the kingdom involves allowing, trusting, witnessing, and letting all things come and go. The truth of the kingdom involves learning to cultivate a deep enjoyment of whatever arises. This is exactly the message from Michael Singer's talk. Seeing that all things are just modifications of consciousness itself and then letting them go when it is time to do so. Rest assured, there is no one, not a single soul, who has ever discovered something that was birthed in time that did not also end in time. How much of your suffering comes because you're clinging to a lifeless past and insisting that you carry it with you still? You are doing that because in the past you became identified with the clouds that were passing by. And you claimed that as your own identity. Therefore, you believe if you release it, you won't go on. Creation itself that flows from the mind of the Creator is ongoing forever. You will never cease to be. You will go on forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. You will go on forever exactly as you are now. Or you can allow the mind of God to flow through you, carrying you to an ever greater expansiveness and deepening your awareness of the infinite loveliness of the power of the mind of the Creator. So because you've been given the capacity to choose... You can go on just the way you are. You can continue to claim that your identity is your thoughts. Your identity is how you know you're right and somebody else is wrong. Your identity is caught up in knowing rather than being. You can continue to do that just as you are now. Or you can soften 
and allow the mind of the Creator to flow through you and carry you to even ever greater expansiveness and deepening of your awareness of the infinite loveliness of the power of the mind of the Creator. You know, people are talking about, when am I going to be done with my issue? And when am I going to be enlightened? And when am I going to achieve peace? Or, and as though there's some destination to be achieved. And this book and others talk about, listen, if you are a spark of the one mind, the one divine creative mind, and that is always growing, always changing, infinitely creating and moving, and how can you ever possibly be done knowing yourself? Well, you can't. Now, your mind can imagine a time when you're different, when you've arrived, when you're enlightened. You can actually create an experience of yourself as small and limited and knowable by the what Michael Rice would call the nine-bit mind, what this work would call the intellect. You can create an experience of it You can create the dream of being separate and then knowing yourself as tiny and small and, you know, worthy of shame and guilt. But that's never been your true essence and it can never be your true essence. So the next heading on this book flies in the face of what we're taught in the Western world. The heading reads, Mastery arises from innocence. And I talk about it most of the times when I read this book in my mind. I think about, you know, it's the opposite of what I've been taught. Mastery arises from putting my nose to the grindstone and putting in my 10,000 hours and taking advantage of every opportunity and writing another book and, and on and on and on. So here's a new thought. Mastery arises from innocence. The text reads, in these lessons, we will create a system or a pathway upon which you can walk. You don't have to. But you can walk on this pathway to deliberately cultivate the quality of awareness in consciousness that is necessary to stabilize that awareness so that you can bring to it and bring it to each and every moment of your experience. deliberately cultivate a quality of awareness in consciousness which is necessary to stabilize that awareness. What's the awareness? That you remain as you were created to be. The text goes on. Imagine then being able to experience whatever arises without losing the sense of spaciousness, the sense of innocence, the sense of ease that you now experience only in fleeting moments. For instance, you know the experience when things are going well. You're singing a happy tune and life seems to be moving ahead. Imagine that same quality of trust, faith, and certainty of purpose even when the buildings are crumbling around you and the bank account has gone dry. Imagine being able to look at those events with the same sense of innocence and wonder with which you would look 
into the eyes of your beloved. For such a quality of awareness is perfect mastery. Within it are discovered perfect peace, perfect freedom, perfect joy, and uninterrupted communion with all of creation. And if you would well receive it, that quality of feeling intimately one with all of creation is what you've been seeking as a soul since first the identification with a creation called ego began. For that creation, in the moment it was created, it created a conflict and it created the illusion of separation. Everything you've ever attempted to do since has been an attempt to overcome separation and to gain back what you felt you had lost. It's just that the ways you've sought to do it do not work. It's the sustained incoherence. It's the thinking about a process. It's about judging something. And in the process of judging something, creating the illusion of separation, and then deciding that the way to get back in connection with things is to judge more things as bad and other things as right and to judge others and their work. Listen for, tune your own listening ear to people who think they know and and let these words, these observations from the great Eastern traditions resonate with you. He who thinks he knows doesn't know. She who thinks and says she doesn't know, she's on to something. When I understand and I think I've got the way, if I go to people and I start telling them, you really need to read the way of mastery because they've got the real the real path of forgiveness. That's got the real energy of love and creation. This, this is the real Jesus message. If I go out to spread that to other people, I'm way off the mark. If I've decided that my way to do forgiveness is the only way, I'm missing the boat. And in that moment, I'm creating a judgment. I'm creating a tension within myself. I'm creating the false belief that I know what cannot be known with the conscious logical mind. I can know my own experience, even though it's not always evident in his words. Dr. Michael Rice will talk about in some of his older lectures. Let's talk about the difference between right versus wrong thinking and right for me versus not right for me. I can know by observation what works for me and what doesn't. I can know what brings tension, what brings upset, what brings the dream of separation into a clearer focus for me. And I can have an experience of letting it melt away and releasing my attachments. At the same time I can do that, I cannot know what another person needs. I can't know what anything is or is for other than stuff I've made up from the trivialities that have been forced into my intellect 
and the language I've been taught and the belief systems of my family and my culture. And so I can't know what anything is or is for, and I can't know what any of my brothers and sisters need. Michael gives voice to this in some of his earlier lectures. It, it may be missing from some of his teachings these days, but he would talk about, hey, um, here's a friend that calls him up and says, hey, Michael, I'm going to rob a bank this weekend. Do you want to come along? And Michael says in his talk, um, thanks, uh, but no thanks, that's not right for me. It may be right for you. I'm not going to tell you, you know, that's wrong and you shouldn't do that. And Michael says, because what do I know? Maybe this person needs the experience of a run-in with the law and the court system and maybe some time in jail to move them along their personal path. I can't know that. He says, at the same time, I can know that what might be right for me is to call authorities and warn them to see, you know, maybe we can prevent people from getting hurt, and that may or may not be right for me. So in the spirit of the, the deep teachers like Krishnamurti, I would take that and I would say, I don't know that this is the one true path of forgiveness. I just know that when I do it, it works pretty well for me. If somebody comes to me and asks me, hey, why do you do that way of mastery stuff? I say, here's why, because it's working for me. I used to say when people would ask me about this book and I wouldn't want to talk about Yeshua and all of the, I would just say, all I can tell you about this book is that it's singing to my soul. And you could follow me around for weeks or months outside of this internet show or outside of our support groups and never hear me talk about the way of mastery. It is not my job to tell other people that the way they're doing their life is wrong. It's a big enough challenge for me to wake up to how I can continue to cultivate the way of the heart where I deliberately and consciously choose to become again as an innocent child. It's enough for me to cultivate the quality of awareness and consciousness necessary to stabilize that awareness so that I can bring it to each and every moment of my experience. That is more than a full-time job. That is every minute of every day and every breath. So, to come back to the last paragraph I read, such a quality of awareness is perfect mastery. Within it are discovered perfect peace, perfect freedom, perfect joy, and uninterrupted communion with all of creation. And if you would well receive it, that quality of feeling intimately intimately one with all of creation. That feeling is what you've been seeking as a soul ever since you first identified with the creation called ego. That creation created a conflict and created the experience of separation. Everything you've ever attempted to do since then has been an attempt to overcome separation and gain back what you felt you had lost. It's just that the ways you've tried to get back to it do not work. The world of conflict, fear, guilt, and unworthiness 
and the world of the kingdom lie side by side within your own mind. The eye of the needle that one must pass through is the recultivation of the innocence of a child. It is for this reason that I often taught, quote, become again as a little child to enter the kingdom, close quotes. The cultivation of the way of the heart is that pathway whereby you deliberately and consciously choose to become again as an innocent child. Just as you were in the beginning before you were ever created and then incarnated into this dimension of experience that seems so permeated with a sense of conflict and separation. Before you created a body, before you incarnated into this dimension of experience that seems so permeated with a sense of conflict and separation, you were wide open consciousness, innocence of a child, allowing, accepting, embracing, trusting everything until you took form in this dimension that seems so thoroughly permeated with conflict and separation. So uh, I'm going to stop before going ahead to the next section. I'm going to come back and ask for comments or questions. We have 10 minutes left. And just reiterate one of the most useful, powerful, deep things I've gotten from the way of mastery is the experience of playing with thoughts about how I can't know anything and everything I think I know is either only partially true or perhaps even completely false and how when I'm judging and believe me, my mind judges all day every day and the more I pay attention to it and catch it, and release the judgments, the better my life gets. Area code 541, you're in the air. Yes, Dr. Tim, thank you. This is Celinda. I would love to, um, if, I, if I could somehow convey how much your uh, sharing of both your personal life and this way of mastery and your joy in reading it has helped me because uh, having come from a traditional Christian background, uh, evangelical, <clears throat> I was very deeply taught to believe and um, very deeply steeped in right or wrong. And if I don't have the truth, I'm dead, and I must save everybody else. And I'm amazed at how strong that um, uh, deep download is, even when I consciously am aware that what's true for me is not true for someone else and catch myself preaching. Um, And I see how every 
new revelation so quickly gets converted into a belief system, gets uh, rigid and then concretized and then institutionalized and bureaucratized. So I really appreciate your offering and sharing today because it's helping me to walk in that wide open place when I forget and fall into the ditch. That's what we can do. It's, you know, start again. That's one of the reasons in this book it says so often, now we begin at the beginning of the lessons. The message is we just have the present moment and we can choose again the way Diedrich Wolzak would call us to. If I fall into a ditch, I wake up and recognize I'm in a ditch, I take a look at what I might have done to help contribute to my being there, and now I've got something that I can change that might lead to a better consequence the next time around. And also the sharing of all the different uh, perspectives. And I don't know if I ever um, mentioned this on the show or not, but once when I was on Kauai many, many years ago, 40 or more probably, um, I uh, was reading a book called If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him, which yep, is the only book. thing I re- <laughs> it's the only thing I remember about the book is the title. But I was reading that one day and I um was sitting at a little low table, kind of an Asian kind of table, and I all of a sudden I heard in my mind this cacophonous noise. Um just in my mind and I saw with my mind's eye this brilliant light. I mean brilliant. And as it got bigger and bigger and came closer and closer, and I was very awake. It wasn't like I was off in la-la land. I was very aware I was holding this book and everything. And it got bigger and bigger until I could discern it was this diamond, this shimmering diamond with all of these multiple facets. And when it got closer and closer, the cacophony of sound became... A, um, a lot of murmuring of voices, which became louder and louder to shouting of voices. And when I finally found the, the vision, the diamond stopped, on each facet was this little teeny tiny person holding a little teeny tiny book, waving it above his or her head, yelling, this is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth. And I um, wanted to share also, besides that revelation, I mean, it blew me out of the water, but I didn't know how to bring it all together until now, at this 40 or 50 years later. And what I uh, also realized is because I came from evangelical background, all the Protestants did was substitute the Bible for the Pope. And my revelation for myself is if I were required to um, be in a Christian spiritual tradition, I think I'd choose the Pope over the Bible because it's so concretized and it's so open to everybody's interpretation. And then they've got it to stand on as the word of God. So I thought I'd share that with you. 
All right. I must confess to not quite understanding how you're choosing the Pope over the Bible. Is that what you said? Well, it's at least a human being. <laughs> and that's uh, just like, it's just one more layer, you know, from a person to the written symbols on a book, on a page. Uh, it, it, you'd have to kind of experience, I suppose, what I'm trying to convey to understand how constrictive, how incredibly constrictive that can be. At least how, the how, how constrictive what can be? That having a literal translation of the Bible. There was a German uh, priest once that I read, I think in a Buddhist magazine, who happened to say any literal interpretation of the Bible is violent and will lead to incredible violence. And that was another clue for me. I just uh, wanted to share those, not that they're even true, but they certainly resonated in my life experience how I felt so entrapped when I was beginning to have flashes of insights that uh, were contrary to the interpretations and how constrictive it was and how few mystics in the past, I'm not sure about now, as we're all coming closer and closer together in truth or in spirit. Um, but in the past, there were very few mystics in the um in the Protestant tradition, there were the Quakers and a few others, but most of it were very left-brain-oriented denominations that I was familiar with. And then the charismatic movement came along, and that was uh, was uh, revelatory, um, very opening. It seems like every spiritual uh, revelation that comes along somehow gets transmuted into something some solidified religion just just thought that's 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 the nature of it well thank you for your input you've taken us right down to the end of the hour i will mute you so you can listen in for the second hour if you so choose michael is away and so today and tomorrow we'll be listening to aramaicisms today is part one and that'll happen again on monday and tuesday so all four parts of the aramaicisms um, recording that was done, I think, in 2015 with uh, Dale Allen Hoffman and Michael Rice. And I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. So welcome, everybody, to Aramaicisms. And our topic tonight is going to be the discerning of the truth of the endangered Aramaic thought system. We're going to look into that thought system that sourced at least six of the world's major religions, and we're going to work toward understanding, in particular, the first century meanings of its words. I'd like to introduce uh, Aramaic scholar Dale Allen Hoffman, who, uh, as a young man at the age of 15, showed up at our teaching center, curious, wanting to know, and he tapped into the Kabor's manuscript in the Aramaic, and uh, the rest is history. He's becoming one of the most uh, renowned practical scholars on the planet. I say practical because there are many scholars who live in their heads, have never had an experience of 
what actual spirituality is, what the actual presence of love is that is the purpose of these ancient Aramaic teachings, but live in their heads and talk about those things where Dale travels the globe and teaches people how to have that experience. So Dale, I'm delighted to be here on the stage with you. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, uh, Michael's introducing me so that I can introduce him. And then are you going to introduce me again? or? I know, we'll just go for okay. one. <laughs> uh, first, let me say welcome. I normally, anybody who's ever been to one of my events before, we always begin with toning in prayer. And uh, I'm actually going to sidestep that, step that a little bit. We're going to do the introductions first. We'll get to the toning in prayer part. Um, yeah, I showed up at Heartland in 1995. Just, I want to make this as brief as I can. It was when I was seven years old that I took out, grew up in the Methodist church, which I'm happy about because that means I didn't have a lot of fireballs thrown in my face, so I didn't have a lot of things I had to pull out later on. But uh, it was when I was seven years old that I sat down on my grandmother's living room floor on a carpet and I laid out five different Bibles and I opened up to the Beatitudes, which was my favorite thing in the world, from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthai, and Aramaic. And I compared them to each other. And I didn't do it because I was trying to learn something. I was just interested. Like, how different is this going to be? The, the freakish thing was that two of them were com nothing like the others, and these three were basically different from each other. It was just this, this weird thing, nothing, and I don't just mean slight variations, I mean none of them really lined up with the other. Then when I was 14, that's when I would sit down and open up to the red words of Jesus in the Bible and I would write down a couple of the lines and riff on that for line after line after line and I'd write eight to ten pages that nobody ever read because I didn't write it because somebody needed to read it. I read or wrote those because I had to. And then when I was 21, I start hearing more about, I start getting more into Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, and I kept hearing about this uh, guy. As a matter of fact, I was in a Course in Miracles group, study group down in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, and somebody said to me, uh, Michael Rice is coming to town. I'm like, oh, really? Good. Okay. They're like, he does the Aramaic. And I'm like, what, is, like Macarena or something does the Aramaic? <laughs> Funny thing that at that age, as deep as I was into the Bible, I didn't know what Aramaic was. And I'm like, well, what's Aramaic? And they're like, well, that's the language Jesus spoke. And I went, hmm, he didn't speak English? And everybody laughing at me, ha, ah. People don't think about that, believe it or not. Uh, and then I said Arabic, right? And they're like, no, Aramaic. And I went, aromatic? And they're like, yeah, it means he smells really good. So anyway, here I end up at, in Clearwater, Florida, at a workshop called Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And uh, literally by the first break, I was like literally sitting on my hands. My eyes are gushing tears. My heart's beating out of my chest. I'm laughing. I'm crying. And I walked up to him, and I still remember that look that he gives, that sort of that, he gave me the look. It was a different kind of a look. And he said, what's happening? He said, it looks like I could peel you off the ceiling right now. And I said, whatever you've got, I want it all. And I ended up at Heartland. And what happened at Heartland is I didn't get deep into the actual language. That came later. What I got deep into was the experience. And I got deep into the actual Aramaic process of forgiveness uh, that's been so misunderstood in the last 2,000 years. You ever play Pass the Secret? You know, you're in kindergarten and on this end it's like, the boy in the green shirt fell into a hole and over here the elephant walked sideways while he was... What, it, it makes no sense to what's over here. Imagine that in 2,000 years. 
So I got really deep into that. And then from there, I started getting really deep into the language itself, into the texts themselves and translations. And I'll talk a little bit later about things like x-ray copies of Bibles where you can actually see if ink soaked through from the other side of the page and lands in just the right spot to change either the phonetic marking or the letter itself, which can change the meaning completely. Yeah, it happens more than you'd realize. Um, but the thing that happened in 1995 was I got the base. My heart was opened up by what Michael was teaching, mostly because of the actual forgiveness process, which, of course, we'll probably touch on, I'm sure, in the next I'm few sure nights. we will. Uh, but it changed everything for me. And I've seen over the last 20 years, I've seen a lot of people, I've seen Michael's work, he won't say it, I'll say it, borrowed by a lot of people and then twisted because they didn't really put it into practice and understand it. And then they'll kind of repackage it in a different variety that's more palatable for the masses. Um, when it comes to integrity, I know of no person who's out there teaching that he, number one, walks it more than him or has the integrity and will literally take responsibility right in the present moment for anything that he, on some level, didn't realize you know, was happening, he'll eat it right there in front of you. So that's a huge, 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 uh, I want to say mentor, but it's like we're brothers and it's like we're, there's just, it's this egoless relationship. So I want to say thank you for being here and I'm going to uh, turn it back to him. And uh, I think you should say a little bit about your background first and then talk about how crazy the stuff I've done over the years is or something. Cool. I was thinking that the first time you came to Heartland, you were about 15. It was I know. You, you, I, no, no, I was, uh, yeah, 20, okay. 22, actually, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you always say that. So. I do. I always say that. That's I lied. What can I say? You'll forgive it someday, but no. <laughs> It's true. So, let's set the stage. You are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. And we set up a workshop series, and we hear from this gentleman in Russia who wants to come to the workshop series. And we know you've got an extra room in your house, so we ask if you would mind picking this person up at the airport, or the airport, translating for them, and housing them, and then taking them back to the airport at the end of the week. And you're just delighted to have that opportunity. And at the end of the week, you know, by the time the week is out, we've had dinner a couple of times, we went out for lunch with this fellow, we had a great time, just a, a wonderful man. And so at the end of the week, I want him to know I don't speak any Russian. I want him to know what I think of him. And so I ask if you would tell him that I think that he's really cool. And you say, okay. And you turn to him in Russian and you say, Michael thinks you've got a low body temperature. <laughs> now, you translated my words perfectly, but you obviously didn't say a word about what I meant. In most circles where what is purported to be the teachings of the man named Yeshua, if he walked into those circles and listened to it, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. Because Greek ideas have supplanted his original first century Aramaic thought system. And the Aramaic language is a very idiomatic language. 
And imagine, let, let's take a, a little statement with a couple of idioms in it that you'll understand perfectly because they're idioms in use today in English. But imagine that we're going to put them in a time capsule and 2,000 years from now, somebody who speaks English is going to unwrap them. We're not going to go through three, four, five languages, cultures, and everything else. We're just going to take this statement and imagine somebody 2,000 years from now opening and reading this description of this gentleman's day. And so the description goes like this. I went to the office this morning and found myself in a pickle with my boss. And she canned me. I went to my desk to clean it out. I needed to go to the can. I came back, finished cleaning out my desk, went home. My wife was in the kitchen canning. And she said, help me if you can. And I said, I can't. Now, you know exactly what I just said. But imagine somebody 2,000 years from now, where who knows what kind of word changes have taken place. Imagine what kind of mindset it's going to take to understand what I just said. We have a friend out in California, and he oftentimes houses foreign students. And he had a young Chinese student who came and lived in his home while he was going to school. And this normally happy person came home from school one day all in an upset, like so visibly upset that my friend Donald said to him, what's, what's going on for you? He said, whoa, very bad day at school. And, and Donald said, well, what happened? You seem to have been having such a great time in school. He said, at school they called me a very bad name. And Donald said, well, what did they call you? He said, I looked it up in the dictionary. They, they called me a very bad name. They said I was a cold cowboy. Donald looked at him, it's like, you know, it's not exactly the vernacular of this language. So, he, well, what exactly did they say to you? They said I was a cool dude. <laughs> and I looked it up in the dictionary, and to him, it wasn't a very nice thing to be called a cold cowboy. The Aramaic language is rife with these kinds of problems and challenges. And, and the thought system in Aramaic, and that's why we're talking about restoring an endangered thought system, the thought system in Aramaic is a complete thought system that includes everything you could possibly experience through your body-mind unit, how to make sure that it stays on track and that you stay in high-level wellness. And that thought system is endangered by a thought system based in hostility and fear. If you've ever held a newborn child, and Jeannie and I have asked the question, how many have ever held a newborn child, and asked people just to describe the essence in the newborn, it's a question we've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe. And everybody who describes the essence of their newborn uses a word that reflects some variation on the theme of love. Why? Because everybody knows what human life is. Then we come into the culture, and the culture starts to put its thumbprints on us. And once we are struck with those thumbprints, we tend to lose awareness of the experience of ourselves as this awesome active presence of love and the cellular effect of that experience, which is bliss and ecstasy. The child comes in experiencing that, and we're designed to live in that. And the culture with its thumbprints changes the thought system 
from one that supports living in that state to one based in a different state. The second question that Jeannie will usually ask at the opening of the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop is how many have ever done something they regret? And again, having asked tens of tens of thousands of people that question, everybody's answer is some variation on the theme of hostility or fear. The language and the thought system of hostility and fear is replacing the language and the thought system and the support system for living as human beings, for living as love. It's as though human life is almost gone from the planet. And what we're looking to do is to solidify and restore an understanding of that first century Aramaic thought system that supports us really truly experiencing living in our physiology in ecstasy, and bliss, 24-7, 365, whatever's going on in our world. What we feel from is designed to come from being, the state of a human life, who we are. And we get converted, we get shifted out of that into a thought system based in hostility or fear, and once we plug into that, then our minds tend to work and produce everything it produces in that hostility and fear system, which is insane compared to the system based in human life. I define insanity as a human form without the active presence of love in it. If you go back 2,000 years ago, you hear this man, Yeshua, saying, my words are your perfect life. You'll notice he doesn't say, I am. He says, my words are. Vladimir Lenin says, you can destroy a culture by doing one simple thing. All you have to do is change the meaning of its words. Well, how could you destroy a culture by changing the meaning of words? Culture is transferred from generation to generation through words and thought. If you change the thought behind words that are important to living as love, then you lose the ability to live as you're designed to live. We are here to convert everybody on the planet. Not into anyone's church. That's the non-being mind's cheap copy of conversion. Conversion is bringing each of us back to a love-based thought system, a love-based mind that works as it was designed to work. You can go back into the 6th century and there was a man named Rabola. He was a bishop. And Rabula decided he knew how it should work. Rabula is the root word for our idiom today of a rabble rouser. That's the kind of mind this guy had. He went everywhere he could and destroyed every Aramaic writing he could find, every Aramaic scripture, and replaced it with his own translations. And what we're looking to do is to reestablish the Aramaic thought system and come back to the truth of who we are. We're going to get into some wild stuff tonight. Um, one of the, uh, there's a base I'd like to set. Actually, there's a quote I have. This is from a guy that's been a huge inspiration to me. And I think that there's certain people that, I think people that are out there teaching this guy's teachings and sort of twisting those a bit too. His name's Ernest Holmes. Anybody ever heard of him before? He said, if the philosophy of Christianity were lived, were lived, wars would cease, unhappiness would cease, economic problems would be solved, poverty would be wiped from the face of the earth, 
and man's inhumanity to man would be transmuted into a spirit of mutual helpfulness. And here's the base that I'd like to lay before we go forward. But we're going to talk a bit more about this either later tonight or tomorrow. But everybody, I talked about those Beatitudes. I've had this relationship with the Beatitudes since I was about five years old. Uh, Everybody know what the Beatitudes are? Maybe, maybe not. Anybody know what the third Beatitude is? It's one of the questions I get asked the most. Anybody know their Beatitudes? This is from the Sermon on the Mount, first public teaching of Yeshua. I'll give you a little bit of a hint. They're the blessed are statements. We're going to get to those a little bit later, but... The third one says, blessed are the meek. Um, Even though it's a subject for later in the evening, I wanted to start with this base, at least for me. Uh, First of all, it doesn't translate as blessed are the doormats. Okay? That word, the best word that I can give you in English for this, because this to me is one of the absolute bedrocks of being able to, to be open to learn. The best word I can give you in English is humility. Now, humility comes from the Latin word humus, which isn't a Middle Eastern chickpea dip that's like great with pita breads and carrots and stuff. That's hummus. Humus. Anybody know what humus means? What's humus? Any gardeners? Soil. It's, that, it's the, the, the earthy open. It, it's the earthy open soil that has those beautiful fertile roots and water can flow very much through it. Humus literally is a Latin root that means an open relationship with the earth, open, flowing. From the Tao Te Ching where it says the Tao is like a river flowing home to the sea. It also says in the Tao that there's nothing more powerful yet yielding than water. Okay? Now, the reason I say this is because one of the things that we definitely, in his decades and my decades of study, one of the things we don't see a lot of is humility. What we do see a lot of is, I know what I'm talking about and I'm the expert, whatever that may be. Um, it's intriguing. You, you can mark my words on this. I would say film it and you know, put it somewhere, but that's happening anyway. The people that are considered biblical experts today, okay, 2015, especially in terms of Christianity, over the next two decades, many of them are going to be turned on their heads and the people that are looked at as the disturbing elements out on the fringe who are talking about things that other people label conspiracy theories, etc., are all of a sudden going to be pulled into the center of the room and people are going to honor and say, guess what? You were right. And this means people like Bart Ehrman, Elaine Peggles, uh, James Tabor. There's just so many names I can pull out of the hat. Lots of people that are... Uh, people are labeling them as being just trying to like be troublemakers or something. And here's the thing. Um, just because a theology or a belief system, BS, is predominant and widely spread and everybody seems to buy into it, doesn't mean that's what's correct. Okay? And there's one thing that can become danger, and that's fundamentalism. Because what fundamentalism can masquerade as is keeping a truth alive in its original intention. The danger in that is all it needs is a slight shift here and then a slight shift here and then a slight alteration here and a slight alteration here. Remember, past the secret. And you go several thousand years down the line and people think they're getting what's real, but that's not necessarily what they're getting. And here's the other thing. When you're in the fences of theology, there's a danger in that 
Because you're told, look, if you stay in this fence, you're safe, you are in the family, you are in our social club, we will support you, we will love you. If something happens, if you're starving, we'll come feed you. But don't go outside of the fence. What happens when you go outside of the fence? Intriguingly, I started with a guy that was already outside of the fence, which I'm happy about because here's the thing. I started going to lots of conventions, started going very deep into like symposiums that would last a week on ancient languages. And I used to notice, I started noticing after a while that the people that screamed the loudest and their eyes would bulge the furthest out of their head like a Simpsons cartoon were the ones that usually won the arguments. Interesting thing, the one that didn't give up. And that's when I started studying, you know, lots of different things that tied right in with Aramaic, like the way that uh, you can actually go and go to a theological seminary, some kind of biblical-based academy, and get one sentence mentioning that, by the way, the Jesus guy spoke Aramaic, and okay, back to the Greek thing now. And I had issues with this, and I started digging in. Why would this happen? Why would this happen? And I started studying guys like Irenaeus. That was the guy that... Uh, is responsible for, as an example, changing the gospel of the beloved disciple, which was about a woman, into the gospel of John, which is about a man. Um, He's the guy that oversaw the forgeries of a lot of the Pauline letters that are still in the Bible today. Um, Looked in Constantine, and I saw that an original Aramaic thought system that was broken down and broken down and broken down and twisted and manipulated and let's bring in some Egyptian mythology which is basically the entire history of the Jesus lifetime and you start looking at all these things and you start learning what's actually real anymore and that's when I started to realize that truth is not something I'm going to find on a page it's not something in the letters truth is a direct experience there's a real danger in thinking that the concepts in your mind that you're projecting on letters on the page are what's right, as opposed to the realization that what you are looking for is what is looking, in the words of St. Francis of Assisi. And that's what I got from Michael's work. That's what I got from actually doing the breath work and doing the forgiveness process and realizing that Yeshua wasn't telling us to go out there and add stuff in. He was actually showing us how to take things off. And this actually, Michael was speaking of that joy and that ecstasy one of the, probably one of the most misunderstood teachings that came out of Yeshua's mouth has to do with prayer. Do you want to start that off? Or? Sure, yeah. Well, you look at that word and you hear the disciples asking Yeshua, teach us to pray. Now, let's imagine that I'm a voice teacher and you said to me, Michael, teach me to sing. Would I be teaching you to sing if I sang you a song? Obviously not. What would I do? I'd give you some instructions for how to sing. Many people are shocked to realize that what the world has called the Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer. It's a set of instructions for how to pray. And in Aramaic, what does the word prayer mean? Well, it's kind of a shock for most people in the West until they start to understand it. But the word means, more closely, to set a trap for God. Which the average mind goes, well, what does that mean, to set a trap for God? Well, if you think about your television set, and you've got an antenna on the roof, and you're tuned to channel 2, if your antenna is shaped properly and oriented correctly, 
then your antenna is a trap for channel 2, feeds a good signal in, and you get a clear picture and clear sound. If someone goes up and bends the arms on the antenna, turns it backward, or drives into the parking lot with a car, car that's poorly tuned, then you're not going to have a very good trap or device to bring that signal in. So in Aramaic, there's the recognition that this physiological device is designed to capture the live active presence of love and bring it into the world. What is God? God is love. So when we are properly attuned and aligned, and the word that's been translated as soul can also be properly translated as a tuning mechanism, when we're attuned, then there is this awesome active presence of love that sprays or radiates from us onto everyone. Anyone who walks the world in that modality is a walking field for healing humanity. And so what you find in the Aramaic Lord's Prayer is, here's how you attune and align yourself to be the space where love shows up. So it's a set of instructions. As I can remember three times, the third time I wrote the Beatitudes out using the dictionary in the back of our publication, Kaburus, the Enlightenment book. And I was always taught that the, uh, the Beatitudes were this nice philosophy. And the third time I wrote it out longhand, we've got a first century dictionary in the back of that book, Enlightenment. The first time I wrote it out longhand, it was like, oh my God, this is an instruction set. This is a how-to. The so-called Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer. It's an instruction set for how to capture and reflect into the world the active presence of love, especially if you're facing what the world calls an enemy. How do you do that? You know, there are lots of nice words that are said about, well, you should love your neighbor, but if you've got somebody who's full of rage and you tell them to love their neighbor, chances are they're going to end up in huge amounts of guilt because they have no clue how to love their neighbor and therefore when their rage, their fear, their sadness, their anger comes up, they've failed and they are dashed into the dirt and they buy the, the belief system that there's something wrong with them when the truth is nobody showed them how to do that. And if nobody shows us how to do something, how do we do it? The Lord's Prayer is a set of instructions for how to do that. The Beatitudes are a set of instructions for how to activate an unconscious neural structure that's designed to guide us to happiness and well-being. So we see instructions, and by and large, that's the piece that's been lost, because you can't understand, truly understand a set of instructions until you follow them. You can't talk about a set of instructions until you've truly experienced them. You can't describe the result of following a set of instructions until you follow them and experience the result. So we see lots of people, in fact, Yeshua talked about these people 2,000 years ago. He says, you put all these people to their work and you won't touch one bit of it yourself. And that, unfortunately, is what's happened with the ivory tower. I remember Dale sharing with me being at a conference and they're arguing over the meaning of words and Dale said, well, has anybody ever tried this? 
put it Anybody into practice, maybe? Put this into actual practice? What <laughs> happened when you did that? They looked at me as if I had lobsters crawling out of my ears for about 20 seconds, and then they just looked back at each other and started arguing again as if I didn't even exist. So that was a good lesson. Yeah. So what we want to do is get down to the practical how-to and to understand what those first century meanings meant. Love is not something we do to each other. Love is a state of being. Think about the newborn. It's not something the newborn's doing, it's what the newborn is. When I ask you to tap into the experience of holding a newborn, notice you don't have to go to your head or your intellect to do that. You go back to the experience of that presence that was there. If I ask you that other question, how many have ever done something they regret? Notice you have to go into your head and think about this event and, oh, what did I do? What did I feel? This is all something that's happening in the head. And ultimately, in order to heal, the key tool will be the tool of forgiveness. And what it does is it empowers you to be out of your mind, to drop the mental games and get into the actual experience of yourself as this awesome active presence of love living through a form that is attuned, that is a trap, that captures and gives a place for you to embody and express in the world. This physicist, Yeshua, 2,000 years ago said, a little leavening leavens the whole loaf. I think we're fairly safe in assuming he wasn't talking about bread. <laughs> what was he talking about? He was saying, if we can get enough human beings incarnated into human forms, then we're going to create a critical mass of love that is going to shift and heal every mind on the planet. And so that's what we're aiming to do, is to give people the tools and understand in context, in the first century, the instructions he was giving for how to experience yourself as this awesome active presence of love, regardless of what's going on in your world. And when you do that, you'll naturally live in humility, and it is that, that fertile place, and it's an ability, it's a mental ability to see and cooperate with the highest and best in others. When you're in your hostility or fear-based mind, how many have ever had the experience of, you know, I heard, I, I just heard, it's about love, I got it, it's about love, and you went home to that person, you said, I got it, it's about love, and that's where I'm going to live forevermore, especially with you. And, and then that's what you did with that person, right? Until the next time they gave you the look. And what happened to your resolve to live is love? If nobody gave you the tool of forgiveness, you didn't know how to do it. Because that look resonated something out of your body's mind that was different than love. And when it comes up, like Goliath in the story of David and Goliath, it takes over. And your choice is rendered useless. And so, how do you actually embody and incarnate a human life in a human form? Just because someone has what looks like a human body does not mean there's human life in there. If you listen to Yeshua, he said, I come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly. He didn't say, I come to bring you fear, I come to bring you threat, I come to bring you suffering. He said, I come to bring you life. I come to teach you how to pray, how to incarnate as the active presence of love and extend that to all the world. And when we move into that space, everything changes. It's not a head game anymore. It's not an intellectual journey. Mm. See, I'm already writing things down. I knew it. as soon as we start going, I'm like, ooh, we didn't think of that one. 
there's a subject, and then I'm going to refocus back on, on the Lord's Prayer itself, which is this. You know, one of, the, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that when you sit in, and in English look at the words of Jesus, Jesus comes from the Greek word that means hail Zeus, in case you didn't know that. Um, ooh. Uh, intriguingly, when you sit and you look at it from an English perspective, a lot of people don't realize that the words that you're seeing on the page weren't actually there originally. Maybe you just you know it on some level, but you're not really acknowledging it. One of those words that, uh, trying to think of, oh, I come to give you life and give it abundantly. The word life. Now let me say something here first. Um, it's an intriguing thing when I started really getting deep into Aramaic, because if I met ten different people, they would say the same words ten different ways. Their cops were chets, and there was just all these kinds of, kind of like going from Boston to where they parked the car to going down, you know, around here. I can't do Southern for some reason, even though I've been here for 12 years. I just can't. I can say y'all or all y'all. I think up to three is y'all. For three or, or four or more, it's all y'all. But um, I don't have the dialect in there. Intriguingly, though, looking at that, that phrase, I come to give you life and give it abundantly, that word life in Aramaic is chaya or chaya. Okay? In Jesus' language, chaya. There's a bunch of other words that, was trans that that word was translated as. Chaya is the word life. I come to give you life, give it abundantly. You ever heard like saved? You have to, have you, people ask me that sometimes. You know, some of the sort of, like what exists as American evangelical white Christianity today, number one, does not exist outside of this country unless an American took it there. Number two, it's only about three or four decades old, okay? The thought systems, the lingo, the words they use, it's very new. One of those things that I get asked is, have you been saved? Now let me ask you a question briefly here. Let's say that your kid is playing with a ball in the front yard and whatever, you're trimming the hedges, and there's a car going by 50 50 miles an hour in a, in a 20 mile an hour zone and the child runs to grab the ball from the middle of the street and you run as fast as you can to grab the child and pull that child back. What did you just do? You saved them, right? What does save mean? What does it mean to save? Preserved life. Preserved life. You just preserved life. You just, a life, a life that appeared like it was about to end and you kept it going. Save is the word chaya in Aramaic. Resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. The word resurrection in Aramaic is the word chaya. There's a lot of words that theology was laid on top when it was the same word in so many different places. Another word would be amen, which is at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Amen. Amen. Uh, intriguingly, there's no eh sound in ancient Aramaic. There's no eh. So if you say amen, there is no sound in that language like that, okay? Now, intriguingly, amen, if you ever heard assuredly, assuredly I say to you, or verily, verily I say to you, that's actually the word amen. Interesting. It was, it was changed. Why was it changed? Who knows? Um, we're going to talk about a lot of words like that, but now I want to I focus for a few minutes just on the Lord's Prayer itself. Uh, we'll revisit the word Lord later, but I will say this just very briefly. Jesus was never called Lord. Jesus never called anything or anyone Lord. I can say that absolutely. You know why I know that as a fact, even though I wasn't there? Because the word Lord did not exist. 
Okay? Now, that word Lord that's translated from the Greek is kurios, which comes from kairos, which means essentially outside of time and space. Uh, it's a realization that would be a sister word of agape, which is essentially oneness with everything. Okay? Now, that word Lord in Aramaic sounds like this. Maria. Maria. We're going to come back to this sound a little bit later. Maria. Interesting. Did you know that? Jesus didn't say Lord. He said Maria. Later on we'll talk about what that means. What the actual word means completely. But here we are. We've got something we're calling the Lord's Prayer. Does anybody know where the word Lord comes from? The English word. Really, that's basically it. It comes from feudalism. It comes from feudalism, basically within the realm of the Church of England. Actually, even prior to the Church of England. We might get to King James at some point. Interesting fellow. But um, literally, it comes from feudalism. And it was called, he was the landowner. He was the giver of life, the bread giver. It was a codependent power person term. Stop using the word Lord. It has nothing to do with what was there originally. And just very briefly... That word for Lord, Maria, the Mar, I say we'll talk about it a little more later. Mar in Aramaic means a bedrock of strength. Something coming from bedrock. You know the red rock in the sky, Mars? Mar and Rhea. What does Rhea or Rhea sound like? Re, Re, Ra, Ora. They're all Aramaic root sounds. Life, sun. Light, excuse me, light or sun. Rhea, Maria literally means one who shines a rhea, feminine light. Feminine light is not the masculine light that we see, but well, you mentioned about holding a baby, that light that a baby exudes, that's not something you're seeing, it's sensed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those who radiated that light from a place, from a bedrock of strength were called Lord. Interesting, Maria. If you put an M on the end of Maria, which is the letter Mem, it literally is Mariam or Miriam, which is the word Mary, intriguingly. So what we're going to do is a little bit briefly about prayer, and then what I'm going to do is actually pray the prayer for you. But I'm not going to pray it in a sort of just everyday wishy-washy, spit it out like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Even in Aramaic, I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's important. It's funny. You can actually find recordings of people speaking the Aramaic Lord's Prayer in all these different dialects. And they're usually going so fast, it's like they're trying to like do it at like a NASCAR race or something so that they can get the flag or something. Uh, it has nothing to do with it. Funny, in Matai, it doesn't say pray these words in Matthew. It says pray in this way. Okay? Now, prayer is something that Michael mentioned, setting a trap for God. That word in Aramaic is sluta. Sluta is the word prayer. Okay? Now, the ta genders the word feminine. That's an intriguing thing. I don't want to go too deep, but I will say this in terms of language. And this is especially in Aramaic, specifically. There's a lot of language where languages where um, masculine and feminine get a little wishy-washy. It gets a little wishy-washy in some of the other Semitic languages. Let me explain what it means, okay? My perception of this flashlight that's in my hand is feminine, okay? The actual light itself that I'm holding is masculine. Feminine meaning experiential. Uh, you could say, you could say per, my perception of it, it, it's a little bit of a slippery slope because we're learning so much about perception right now, but my awareness of the flashlight is feminine. The actual thing itself is masculine. Okay? 
Now, what that means is this. Sluta, prayer, isn't a thing. It's not words on a page. It's not words that you speak. It's your being. You remember when Yeshua said, pray in my name? Anything you ask the Father in my name, John 15, 16. And a lot of times, all the time now, you hear, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, if you actually say in English, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you commit blasphemy. Number one, his name was not Jesus. Number two, that's not what name, Shem, Shemach, meaning my name, meant in Aramaic. Now this is the gist before you actually hear the prayer itself. Shem is this. Let me give you Shem. And if you study other Semitic languages, they're not Aramaic, okay? Let me give you it this way. A good example would be Michael Jackson. If I say Michael Jackson, who in this room is just seeing the letters, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J-A-C-K-S-O-N? Who's, who's happening with that? Just letters. Anybody? What happens when I say Michael Jackson? Aaron's especially smiling, Mr. Music Man. So it's like you're, you're, what? You're probably seeing his face, you're probably hearing his voice, you're perceiving his consciousness, his overall what? Vibration, essence. You get what I'm saying? And that's Shem. Pray in my Shem is not, number one, pray in my name. Number two, the name isn't about the letters or the things that you speak, but rather when the name is invoked or spoken, you have the awareness of that person's energy pattern, essentially. And when you hear pray in my name, it's not saying the name Yeshua, even. It's literally saying pray from this place. And I'm pretty sure after he said that, he didn't go, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen that way. So what I'm going to do is give, give you a little bit of an example of that. That word, that setting a trap for God, slota, there's two aspects of that in Aramaic. One aspect is that you have a vision and or something that has been taken from a point of intention to a point of a goal and you hold that in your awareness. And whether you hold it in your arms, loving it and embracing it, or you resist it, as an example, let's say there's, Michael uses this all the time, uh, I'll say this, don't think, about, don't think about Barack Obama, okay? I want you to think about something other than Barack Obama. No Barack Obama. Don't think Barack Obama. And occasionally people will say, Dale, I wanted to let you know I'm not thinking about what you said to think about. And I'm like, oh, what is it that you're not thinking about right now? And that's the trap. Now here's the thing. One aspect of slota or prayer is you have that vision. And this is a vision that either you are 100% for or against. Because as an example, if someone's got a nervous tick and you try not to think about it and eventually it drives you out of your mind, it's just exactly the same thing. What you push back against, you recreate. It's much like a fractal. And anything that you hold in your awareness, your vision, expands. Just like this. And there's a force called rucha, which we'll get to later. Ruach in Hebrew, ruch in Arabic, numa in the Greek. Now, intriguingly, there's another aspect of prayer, which is not just a vision that you hold, like I want to manifest this or whatever that may be, but rather this, that you're just open there's nothing that you're seeking to create, but you're simply open in the humility and the essence of the moment, and it opens through you, and it literally lives through you. Like, as an example, let's look at it this way. Take a breath. Take another one. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let me ask you a little question. What's happening right now? You took two breaths. But what about right now? Are you breathing or are you being breathed? 
You see the difference? The first one had a goal to take a breath, but it's happening right now without the goal, and that expansion's still happening. This is the difference between what you want and heaven on earth. Your idea of heaven on earth is not heaven on earth. That's not a new earth. Heaven on earth is when your ideas get wiped clean off the slate and heaven can live through you. That's what a new earth comes from. And this is where prayer should come from. Not about words or ideas, but rather from the vibration, the essence itself. So I'm just going to ask you to be open for a few minutes. And I'm not going to, like I say, spit out some scholarly thing. I'm actually going to come down here and just make some sounds. We're going to make a sound first that... Can I throw in a thought before sure. you do that? Sure. First of all, interesting that the word heaven can be properly translated as expansion, the kingdom of expansion. Shemaya. And when uh, Dale speaks the Lord's Prayer, tones it, I'm going to just invite you to imagine as you close your eyes that, and, and we know that from a point of view of physics, time and space is an illusion. So I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself transported back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You're not listening to Dale Allen Hoffman. You're actually listening to Yeshua's voice and feeling his presence that opens and awakens you to that state where the active presence of love flows through you. Mm. If you spit out words, you're not praying. I, I, I want to acknowledge, Nick, before we do this, and it seems like it's like, okay, we're getting into this deep place and why would he do this? As an example, a couple of months ago, I sat across from you at West End Bakery here and you were like, oh, I've been learning the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And he had been working on it for about two weeks. So I'm expecting like a train wreck, clunky, you know, sidesteps, all kinds of wild stuff. Um, but from the first word, I felt his heart go. And it was like he got it. He got it. He got the heart. And it's funny, when you get the heart, when you get the vibration, the Shem, the prayer takes care of itself because it's never about the words, okay? So let's just be open. I'm just going to offer this to you. All you need to do is just be aware of your breath. I'm going to do a few tones before I make the actual, say the actual prayer itself. And I'm going to give you an English experiential translation. This is not a theological black and white literal words on the page. This is what's the breadth and the breath and what's the vibration and the essence of, essence of what this actually means. Okay, So just stay open. Shmaya, 
Bosh Bochlan Hobin Wachtahain. I canna dab Hanan Shwakan Lachayabin. Willa Tahlan Lenesione Ilapatan Minbisha. Metul did the Malkutha La Alam Almin. Just stay open. Our one absolute eternal being of which we are born forth from the realm of the all and the only. I am empty within the ecstasy of your presence and the purity of your name. Empower my creative expansion from your emergence from the unseen realms as I realize our strength and light as one on the manifest earth as in the unmanifest heavenly realms. Provide the nourishment of true insight and realization through me now and in every present moment. Release the echoes of my hidden past. Do not let me lose my true self in forgetfulness and wholly release me from the errors of my perception. For the undivided realm is the absolute, the all, and the only. And our strength of gleaming magnificence from cosmic gathering to cosmic gathering, from age to age, from aeon to aeon, from moment to moment, from now to now. May these clear words be the rooted, fertile earth from which all my actions flow. Amen. Amen. Now you can open your eyes or you can keep them closed. Um, it took me a while of working with Aramaic before I realized that what was, what's held in mind was the very thing that Yeshua was cracking like an eggshell. He was getting us to crack, you know, in the words of Joseph Shelton Pierce, cr the crack in the cosmic egg. Well, it's an interesting thought. <coughs> pick up on. And if we look at this device we call a body-mind unit, <coughs> there's some interesting Harvard research that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is there are approximately 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in this structure, that in that same time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, the max amount of information that can go into your awareness or your perception, the construct of your mind that makes things appear a certain way, and you remember Yeshua said, don't judge by appearances. These things that show up in your mind are appearances, and they're made of a maximum, according to that Harvard research, of nine chunks of information. And what those thumbprints do 
when we come into the world is they attempt to shut us down to this nine-bit mind where whatever is stored in the body's mind is all we have access to. And so we have this maximum, and I refer to it as metaphorically the nine-bit mind. And we've been forced into that perception, our so-called educational systems, which have nothing to do with education. The word educari comes from the root to draw out. It does not mean to put in. But those systems tend to shut us down to this nine-bit mind. And we lose awareness of everything else we're designed to be in touch with. Our ecstatic states come from what I call whole field perception. When we listen to Einstein, he says, on such things as matter, we've been all wrong. What we've heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibrations have become so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. So we have this energy field, and we are designed to experience life through all facets of this energy field. When you go into the world of physics, you hear them saying that every molecule in the universe is in continuous communication with every other molecule in the universe. Now tie that physics idea to the ancients' idea of the Creator being omnipresent. If the Creator is omnipresent, and in that presence we live, move, and have our being, then obviously if we went off into every corner of the universe, we would find embodied love. And if I were to just place these hearts into every corner of our board and let that represent the presence of that love coming to us from every molecule in the universe. It's what the physicists are saying. Now, you think about that, and if every molecule is in continuous communication, does that mean that every molecule is continuously sending you information? And if your whole field is open, then you're receiving information and guidance from every molecule in the universe. If the Creator is omnipresent, embodied in all of this, could we properly say that these energies that physics is talking about are in fact the spirit? The ruha, the breath of the Creator coming to us, and as it comes to us, could we be guided by this whole creation if our fields were open to it, which kings don't like, because if you're open and you're guided by that, you become the offspring of the Creator. The ancient said, as many are sons and daughters of love, of God, as are led by the Spirit of God. If we hadn't been shut down to a nine-bit mind, if we were able to be open to receive this input from the whole creation, are we then properly called the offspring of the Creator, sons and daughters of the Creator, rather than sons and daughters of what's going on in the nine-bit mind? If you talk to a modern-day physiologist, they'll tell you that your so-called body has, as its base element, carbon. 
did the man named Yeshua live in continuous communication with the whole of the Creator's essence? Or did he live in his nine-bit mind? To those who lived in their nine-bit mind, he said, I have a different father than you. I have a different source than you. Your source comes from what is stored within your device and your nine-bit perception, your appearances. And if you live there, then you are governed and guided by Adamos, the red clay, carbon. And if you look at a carbon atom, what you'll find is that in each carbon atom, there are six electrons, six protons, and six neutrons. 666. The mark of the past. Everything stored in carbon-based memory is of the past. And if we're stuck in perception from the past, then we are the offspring of the liar, as Yeshua said. He said, your father's a liar. There's no truth in him. Anything that appears in your nine-bit mind from the past is from the past. It's obviously not true right now. But if you buy the perception that comes from the past, you'll act as though what was going on in you two, ten, twenty, fifty, five thousand generations ago is true now. And therefore you're stuck in the lie. That's what Yeshua would say. There's no truth in that framer of your structure. And he says, I have a different father. I live in a different place. And I'm inviting you to go there. I'm here to connect you with the spirit of truth and to knock you out of your nine-bit mind. Those who are locked into their nine-bit mind are really into their money and their stuff and their control and their power and all the games that basically kings play. 